I, I again want to say hello to my online audience and especially to my new friend Joe, who I met this week. So I want to tell you a little story. I, I was at the gym this week and I was rubbing on my muscle cream because I knew I was going to hurt even before I started because I haven't been there a lot. And I heard somebody say, is that David Lee? And I, I, I've got buddies that I see at the gym uh, when I go in the mornings and I thought one of them is going to bust my chops because I haven't been there. I mean, you don't get this without a little bit of effort. So I turned around expecting somebody to say, hey, I hadn't seen you. Well, he was a man I'd never seen before. And I, I must have looked like a puppy that encountered a vacuum cleaner for the first time because I was just... <laughs> And he, he stuck out his hand and introduced himself. And I said, I, I'm sorry, I don't recognize you. And he said, I'm one of your congregants. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I'm really bad at seeing people here on Sunday mornings. He said, well, I'm, I'm online. And Joe's 86 years old. And I, and I don't know how he found us, but he's been watching faithfully online. And so we had just had a nice talk about, you know, the things that ways we can minister to him and, and things like that. So I went about my workout. He went about his workout. And I would say at 86 years old, he's in much better shape than I am. I was like, Joe, I want to be you when I grow up. So when it was time for me to leave, because he was still working out and I was done, I went over and shook, stuck my hand out and shook his hand and said, Joe, it was really a pleasure to meet you today. And he said, no. He said, honestly, it was a thrill for me because, I mean, you're kind of like famous. Because <laughs> he sees me on the TV. And so I tell you that story because I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm kind of a big deal, <laughs> apparently. Let me go on record and say I am not a big deal. And anyway, as a matter of fact, when I started preaching four years ago, I, I kind of made a, a deal with God. I, I've told you this story before. When I started playing guitar, I said, God, I only want to play for your glory. If I ever stand up and play an Aerosmith song, you can make my fingers fall off. So I've never... So when I started preaching, I made the same deal. I said, God, I, I, won't, I only want to preach for your glory and your honor. And if I ever start to think I'm pretty good, I'm kind of a big deal. I said, you can take everything away. So let me say it again. I'm not a big deal at all. I've seen too many preachers at big churches. There was a, a church out in Seattle, mega church, worldwide influence. And that's how they knew things were falling off the rails when the preacher actually said, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. And he meant it. And that church subsequently collapsed. And there's this theme that's repeated throughout the, throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. You see this warning and fulfillment from God where he says be humble or you will be humbled we're continuing looking at some of Paul's core values in his writing we've talked the last couple of weeks about grace and unity today we're talking about humility and it's pretty clear that all three of those things stand in contrast to the spirit of our age I mean Paul wrote these words 2,000 years ago and it's amazing how we haven't changed a bit where the gospel teaches grace, the world says, no, you get what you deserve. You earn it. You achieve it. That's justice. The gospel is meant to pull us together in unity, but the world labels and divides and drives us apart. Well, the gospel teaches us to be humble. And let me ask you, what values of this world stand in opposition to humility? Just tell me, what is the opposite of humility that we see played out in our world every day? Let me hear some things. Pride, 
greed, arrogance, self-promotion, vanity, all those things. Those are how we measure ourselves in the Western world, right? I mean, that's what separates the haves from the have-nots, the one that can sell himself best. We define ourselves by what we have, by where we stand, by what we accomplish. It's a bottom-line world, right? Well, there's a story in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, the mightiest empire the world had ever seen at that time. And it says, one day he was walking on his terrace, admiring his hanging gardens and the city he had built in his own image, his palace, all its splendor. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, he says, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? A voice from heaven immediately spoke and said, you've got it all wrong. And Nebuchadnezzar was exiled to live with the wild animals and to eat grass like an ox for seven years. It took him seven years to learn some humility. It said his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, his nails like the claws of a bird. And you can just imagine this wild, unkempt man until one day he came to his senses. And he said, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he closes this chapter on his story. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. He's a big deal and I'm not. Because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Be humble. Or you will be humbled, especially the Old Testament teaches. Now, we think of humility, I think, often as a passive attitude we take. It's often confused with false modesty. Oh, no, no, this old thing, you know, things like that. Or what we call humility is really a humble brag. If you're not familiar with this, this concept, here's some on Twitter. This is a humble brag. So the girl says, I'm wearing a ponytail rolled out of bed from a nap at the bar with my guy, and guys are still hitting on me. Like, really? I look so bad, but guys are still... That's a humble brag, okay? <laughs> or another one. Can we start a media campaign to question how I got into Columbia too? Still scratching my head about how I got accepted and demand answers. Like, I'm so unworthy to be admitted to Columbia University. Oh, it just makes no sense. Humble brag. Does that make sense? Or one more. I just did something very selfless. But more importantly, it was genuine. And I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Hashtag so worth it. Yeah, that's not humility. That's calling attention to me. C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. But it is thinking of yourself less. That's a good definition. It's not inaccurate, but I think it's not complete. Because in Paul's writings and in Paul's values that he communicates in his letters, humility is so much more. It's an active posture we take toward other people. Paul wrote a lot about humility. He said things like, be, listen to the verbs, be completely humble and gentle. And humility, value others above yourselves. 
Clothe yourselves with humility. That one was so good, Peter stole it. And in 1 Peter 5, 5, he, he said the very same thing. He used the very same Greek words. Clothe yourselves with humility. Now, Paul's word for humility was actually distinctive to him. It appears five times in the New Testament. All are Paul, except that one time by Peter. In, in the Greek common language at the time, the word for humility was a negative word. It implied low-minded. It has the connotation of humiliation, like a groveling servant who's begging for mercy. I mean, even today, if we see somebody had humble beginnings, that meant there was a negative circumstance they had to overcome on their way up the ladder, right? Well, Paul's life traveled the opposite direction. He was born in a life of privilege. He moved to a humble ending. But that wasn't a, a cause for regret. Instead, he invited us to join him in that same downward journey. In his writings, he took that common Greek word that meant humiliation, and he modified it. He added his own ending and made humility a desirable trait, a characteristic of, of Jesus that we should emulate. So as we've looked at two other core values of Paul's writings, grace and unity, I see humility as the, the active peg, the hang on. Showing grace to people who keep getting it wrong requires the humility to admit, yeah, I keep getting it wrong too. But since God has accepted me, I can accept you. Unity with people who are different from us in so many ways that the world says are important. I mean, race and gender and class and education and social status and political affiliation. All the, seriously, is there anything that we can't find as a cause for division today? The biblical standard of unity requires an active brand of humility. I choose to associate with people not like me. In Romans 12, Paul wrote, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Be humble. Take a posture toward people not like you. We said last week, if the church is going to look like Jesus... It's going to have all kinds of people gathering together. People from the outside might think that's embarrassing. I mean, you associate with Kentucky basketball fans? God is great. Hallelujah. I could talk all day about our posture toward people outside the faith, about the ways the early church said, you know what, we're going to make ourselves uncomfortable. We're going to set, some, set aside some personal preferences in order to not put obstacles in front of other people who want to come to faith in Jesus. So many ways that that is exemplified, especially in the book of Acts, but throughout the writings of Paul and Peter and John. I think it's best summed up <clears throat> by a verse we used last week, which is part of the school's theme verse for this year. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Work hard to keep the unity of faith and the bond of peace. Our ability to be gentle and to be patient and to bear with those who wear us out. Those are all outward expressions of an internal humility and acknowledgement that sometimes I need gentleness too. Sometimes I require patience too. Sometimes I need your forbearance as I wear you out too. 
But today, I want to briefly describe what Paul, describe, let Paul describe what biblical humility looks like in the context of the church. Because that's what we're talking about through these weeks is how do we be the church that fulfills God's purpose for us. <clears throat> in a world that uses the Nebuchadnezzar standard, which is look at what I've built, look at what I've done, look at my great majesty and splendor, we're called to a different standard. We're called to recognize, first of all, that the gifts we have are just that, gifts. And so our response should be gratitude. God, I'm thankful for the gifts you've given me. You know, we all have different gifts, and we'll talk about this in a minute. He's not in here to talk about Nolan. So we were going to camp, uh, Bible camp up in Michigan a couple of weeks ago. And it's our third year there, and, and Nolan has grown about a foot and a half since we started going there and, and since last summer. And so Nolan gets a lot of attention because he's tall, and he was talking on the way up there. People are going to say, wow, you've really grown. Wow, you're so tall. That's true. I said, Nolan, have you done anything to make yourself tall? No. I said, I want your goal for the week is for people to compliment you on something other than your height. We all have gifts that we've done nothing to earn or deserve. We're born with talents. We're born with abilities. We're born with things that sometimes we get a lot of credit for. Oh, you're so smart. I, this, I'm not echoing things I've heard. I'm just hypothetically. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so handsome. Oh, you're so strong. Oh, you're so this. Oh, you, you'd have such a good a talent for making money. All these things. <clears throat> and, and we're inclined to look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. No, if you have a gift, it implies there's a giver. So rather than take credit for what God has given you, give credit for his generosity. Number one, be grateful for the gifts God has given you. Number two, the gifts we have are given for the good of the church. So we steward them to build and expand God's influence, not our own. Again, whatever gifts God has given, you could say, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to be humble or you will be humbled. Instead, use what you have for the good of the church. And number three, the gifts we have are spread wide and no gifts are more important than anybody else's so nobody's contribution is more or less important than anybody else's we're not just a fellowship but we're a body working together <clears throat> excuse me I'm going to grab a drink of water real quick as I talk in the Corinthian church there was a keen lack of humility centered around the gifts God had given. Both the natural gifts of ancestry and wealth and status, <clears throat> people were dividing over those. But there was also division over the spiritual gifts God had given. Well, my gift is better than yours. Oh, I wish I had a gift like his. It was creating rivalries <clears throat> and competition and resentment within the church. God's generosity to the church was causing people to fight and argue and divide over who got a better deal. So Paul had to write them not one letter but two to say, stop using your gifts to build your own kingdoms. You're destroying the church. Don't you realize you're all in this together? So I just want to read his words from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And what I've done, I, I've blended two 
versions. The New Living Translation will be in regular type, and then the message is going to be in italicized type. The message is not a translation. It's Eugene Peterson was a preacher, and it's his interpretation. It's when he reads it, this is what he hears. Um, and so those will be in italicized, and so it's going to be kind of a weird flow, but he really helps clarify some things. So from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12, Paul said, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. Well, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews. Some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body but one spirit. We all share the same spirit. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. To people feeling like, my gift's not good enough. He said a body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If the foot says, well, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts. And God has put each part just where he wants it. Paul says every part, every gift is a cause for gratitude. It's a call to action. So are you an eye? Be grateful. But if you're a nose, you have a job to do too. You hold the glasses up so the eyes can see. <laughs> now, he continues, verse 19. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it's only because of what you're part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. So the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see, the parts we don't. So if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You are Christ's body. That's who you are. You must never forget this. Only as you accept your part of the body does your part mean anything. We aren't called to build our kingdom. We're called to expand the reach of God's influence around the world. So if you want to grow in the expression of humility as part of God's church, well, three things we can do, and they're related to those three dimensions we talked about. Number one, be grateful. Make a list of the things you do well, of the gifts and strengths and abilities God has given you. It's not wrong to say what you do well. Ricky Bumbleo says it's not bragging if you can back it up. So just, it's called asset mapping. God, you've given me these strengths and abilities. So spend time thanking God for the strengths he has wired into you. 
And maybe there's strengths that are public and upfront and everybody sees it. Or maybe you're just really good at noticing starburst wrappers on the floor and throwing them away. That's a strength that some people don't have. Spend time thanking God for the strengths, the gifts he's given you. Number two, be a wise steward. Simply ask, okay, God, how can I use what I have to advance your purposes and not mine? I'm really good at making money, God. How can I, how can I use that for your glory? God, I'm not good face-to-face, but I'm good on the telephone. I can write a good email. How can I use that for your glory? Whatever your strengths are, just ask God, how can you use me? I don't feel like I've been part of anything. I don't feel like I've connected. How can, rather than what can the church do to serve me, how can I serve the church with what I have? And then number three, be appreciative of the gifts God has given other people. How can I affirm the contributions others make that we would be poorer for not having? Pay attention. And when you see somebody using a strength that you don't have in the ways that you never would have thought, just say, man, that, I'm so glad you did that. Thank you for building up the body. Gratitude, stewardship, fellowship. That's the path to authentic, biblical, active humility. But the key, the irreducible minimum, it's not about our effort. It's about our focus, and the starting point has to be Jesus. He is our model, the one who washed his disciples' feet and said, Now, as I've, done, as I've loved you, you go love others. So I want to go back to one final thing that Paul wrote, a scripture that I've probably used between Andrew Long and me. It's been used more than any other scripture in the history of Clear Creek from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I mean, just consider, you talk about a path of downward mobility that Paul traveled, that he invites us to travel. He said, nobody descended farther than Jesus. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's as low as it gets, and he willingly chose to do that for us. Now, we're going to take communion. And that's a time for believers to remember with gratitude that downward mobility journey Jesus traveled on our behalf to secure our salvation. It's also a good time to consider for those who have not embraced the grace given by Jesus to say, and there really is a place for me in him. He really did that for me. He really gave up everything so I could be with him. How do I respond to that? I'll tell you how you respond. You say thank you 
You say, take me. You say, use me. You say, I will follow. And it's important to realize Jesus' journey didn't end on the cross. And our choice to follow his path isn't one of hopeless resignation, but of enduring promise. Paul continued, therefore, because he was willing to humble himself on our behalf, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the path he invites us on as well. So after I pray in a moment, spend some time considering the upside down hope we could only find in Jesus. By dying, we find life. In his condemnation, we find pardon. In his rejection, we find acceptance by our heavenly father. And by his humble sacrifice, we can be lifted up. So spend some time just considering what that means for you and to you and what it could mean if it's lived out through you. And then take the bread and the juice, his body and blood present with us as emblems of our hope. Let's pray. Father, we have no right to stand before you. But we have been granted not just entrance as groveling servants humiliated by our sin. God, we've been granted the welcome as children adopted by a father who adores us because of what Jesus has given for us. So God, I pray that we would recognize the hollowness, the futility, the vanity of the Nebuchadnezzar standard that says, I'm going to build what I can and put my glory on display so all people can come and acknowledge me. God, we would reject that soundly because we know that it's smoke. It's grasping things with no substance. And God, when we're free from that pursuit, then we're free to grasp to what's eternal and enduring that fills our lives with meaning and purpose and alignment with your son who again has not only demonstrated the path of downward humility to ultimate exaltation God he's invited us to walk with him I, I pray that we will be faithful and trusting that your heart is good and your plan is sound and your mercies endure forever. And we can believe that because of Jesus on the cross. We pray in his name.